afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, I'm lucky to have Sam Quinones here. Um, he's in town uh, with his book, Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, True Tales of Mexican Migration. And this was put out in 2007 by the University of New Mexico Press, Albuquerque. That's right. <laughs> Get all those fine details in there, right, Sam? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I should say that this this um, conversation is coming to you slightly um, later than we're having it, because we're, we're taping the show. It's September 24th, and um, Sam, you're in town uh, giving, it seems like, giving multiple talks, appearing in panels, classrooms. I, I spoke to a couple of st- uh, classes today, and then I've got a, have a speech uh, today at 5.15 or so, uh, so if you're uh, at listening, the chemistry building. Right. <laughs> Could exactly. actually tape the show and run to <laughs> the chemistry go. building. There you go. What's the talk? What's the really? It's the just talk? about Mexican migration, immigration to the United States, and my book, and the stories in my book, and that's kind of that, this kind of thing. I've been uh, I was in Notre Dame yesterday, and uh, Michigan State tomorrow. So so this is part of the big uh, your big tour. I guess uh, yeah. Over in the Midwest. Exactly here? right. Right. Just uh, what writers I guess have to do to flog their books and, <laughs> and get their their points of view out there and put their ideas out there in the public marketplace for ideas. I guess. Well, it seems as though you've had no shortage of getting the ideas out there because I was looking, you were with um, on NPR with Terry Gross right. and with, um, let's see, with Jim Lair on right. the NewsHour. Yes. I actually even tried to take a look at that clip on YouTube, but they've since taken it off. I guess they have. I guess Rats. that, that Jim Lair. I'll have to put it up on my website. Okay. I, think, I know. They, they, yeah. Oh, well. It must be do? someone's, like, it's probably the intern's <laughs> job patrolling, getting right. things off. Like, exactly. But you'd think it could be for the public forum for ideas. Ideas. You'd think some things they'd l- You'd think. let go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh well, that's another story, isn't it? <laughs> and so, and this is your second book. Um, right. What, what was uh, what was the first book? Because I didn't. The first book was uh, uh, True uh, True Tales from Another Mexico. It was a collection of of stories, nonfiction stories. All my stories are nonfiction. Um, that grew out of my out of my ten years in Mexico. I lived in Mexico from 1994 to 2004. I covered a variety of things. Um, Mexico is kind of political transition from kind of one-party state to uh, a more plural democratic system that it's still kind of finding its way. And I also covered a lot to do with uh, immigration of Mexicans to the United States. This is one of the big issues, I think, facing the country and certainly kind of facing the United States and the global economy. It's part of that that whole transformation, uh, you know, from from a, of the world economy into the kind of this interconnected thing. And we, uh, in this part of the world, or, you know, we rely on Mexican laborers, you know, that's, you can see it here in Michigan, I think, too. It's yes. quite a new phenomenon, but, but growing and, uh, and all across the, the country. I mean, that's the real interesting thing, I think, about Mexican immigration is it's unlike any others, because any other gr- waves of immigration, because there's so many Mexicans have, are in Alaska, they're in Atlanta, they're in New York, they're all over the country. No other immigrant group has really gone in those kind of numbers to all all parts of the United States, South, Midwest, Northeast, West Coast, all that. And and continuing, too, the waves of, it's it's not as if it's right. spikes at this certain point, it's, it's just... Unlike the European immigration, it's kind of came and the wave happened and then it ended for a variety of reasons, world wars or what have you. Uh, yeah, Mexican immigration has continued now in its uh, sixth decade, if you count it from the uh, from the Bracero program, the, this treaty that the U.S. had with uh, with Mexico in the 1940s. 
Uh, and it, yeah, it, it appears to be continuing unabated. We'll see what this economic downturn we're in the middle of, uh, what the consequences are for Mexican immigration. It could be that it slows it considerably. I think it's already done that, in fact. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's part of the world where this new world we're trying to figure out, I think, in the United States. Right. And everyone's, yeah, everyone's part in it. Sam, before we go any further, I was just thinking, I'll read your your short bio from the back of your book. Okay. So we can, you've grounded people, but th- just to give them this, this <laughs> synopsis here. Journalist Sam Quinones lived in Mexico for 10 years, writing freelance for a variety of U.S. publications. In 1998, he was a recipient of the Alicia Patterson Fellowship. Three years later, he published a highly acclaimed collection of stories about contemporary Mexico, true tales from another Mexico, The Lynch Mob, The Popsicle Kings, Chilino, and The Bronx. That's a great subtitle (laughs) for that. Um, Also, University of New Mexico Press. He now lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Sheila, uh, to whom this book is dedicated, and daughter, Caroline Caitlin, and works as a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And uh, and you've got a great website. I've actually visited, so oh. you can see many photos, photos mainly, and, which is it's really interesting. Basically, though. a way of showing photographs that I've done, and and also uh, kind of out- outlining further the stories that I've done uh, in in Mexico. It's just samquinones.com. Yes, your name dot com. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, it, it gives a, a nice visual tour of right. what, what. That's what I was hoping for. Yes, reading. exactly. Okay. Um, so I was looking also. Um, Sam, you were you went to school for? Right. Um, <laughs> you're like yes, indeed, I went to school. <laughs> Good thing to say when you're on the university setting, uh-huh. right? right? You've got your degrees, right? <laughs> and it was um, let's see, it was American history, yes, and um, economics, economics, right. right? And so, and then when did you make the jump to journalism? What happened to, when? Journalism, I think, is best practiced by those who have never studied journalism. Uh, I really don't think <laughs> majoring in journalism is a very uh, productive way of, of being a good journalist. In so fact, was, that your, your, was that your idea then? No, I got some, into it later. I got into it later. I went away for a long time. I went to Europe. I played guitar in the streets of Europe. Um, uh, you know, I went to Rome and Paris and all. You know, it's kind of like the uh, typical college kid, uh, American college kids. So dream. you were moody. <laughs> yeah, and I was playing guitar in the streets, making money that way. And, and with a friend of mine, with some friend of mine, uh, uh, friends of mine, and uh, um, came back and was looking for something to get into to, to find something I could really love as a job. I don't want I didn't want to be in a job where I just kind of existed just to make the pay the rent. And journalism just kind of sounded interesting, you know. And and I kind of little by little I wrote freelance for twenty five dollars a story, and and I was a courier too, well to support myself for a good like three years in, in San Francisco. And and after that uh, I found a job. You know, somebody decided they would hire me out of the blue, and and I was stunned by the fact. Uh, and so I, I went to uh, the, my first first job was in Orange County. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I, the the job that really changed me was the was writing. A, uh, I was a crime reporter uh, in in the Central Valley of California, Stockton, California, where I was uh, during the crack and gang 
epidemic that just was unbelievable to cover. No, so late, nothing I've ever. Late eighties or yeah, late eighties, okay. early nineties, where you know it was just homicides and gang. I mean, just drugs everywhere. It was just the town was overwhelmed by crack uh, during those years. It was very uh, violent place, as were many towns. Crack turned a lot of towns into really scary places um, that were simply un- unprepared for the kind of criminality that that crack engendered. And then that's where I though I began to take a real interest in Mexico because in that county it was largely agricultural I would say easily a quarter of the county was Mexican but not Mexican American was Mexican immigrant they were straight from Michoacan straight straight from Zacatecas states like this and I began to understand that if I wanted to understand the state and cover the state effectively as a reporter thinking only of California at that time that I needed to learn Spanish much better. I, I spoke a little Spanish, but not very well. Not, not enough to be a really a, a reporter who could deeply understand people um, of all walks of life, you know. And so uh, I began to study it more, and then that, fast forwarding a lot, that brought me down to Mexico, where I, I live with a family um, in, in, Mex- in Cuernavaca, town of Cuernavaca. I also, um, uh, w- for the first time, visited uh, um, an immigrant village, a village that had gone where most of the folks lived in the United States. And that really changed my perspective, my life, really. I, I began to be fascinated by that side of the immigration question, because I'd seen it in California as a reporter, right? but never... And, and I don't think many people do, never had seen it from the Mexican side and the changes that immigration wreaks on, on small villages. Can you, you know? can you give us a few visuals of that, like sure. you do in most, the book? At, at, at most, the first town, town I went to um, uh, was like many, many others in Mexico. And, and I was walking around and... and there was all these nice houses. Now, at first, I didn't think anything of it because they looked fine and, I was, you know, nice houses. What's the problem? Until a friend of mine took me aside and says, you know what you need to understand is before people emigrated, the houses looked like this. And he, dry, he, he walks me by an, a little adobe shack with no plumbing, dirt floors, uh, uh, no lights. And, you know, it was like this small little kind of a hovel, really. He says, 8 that's by 12, ho- I think yes, you were saying. It was it. very small. And that's, that's how people lived. They go to the United States and most people went, most of the men, frankly, it was men who did this initially, went with the great dream of leaving that shack behind, going to the United States, working something in something, agriculture, restaurants, whatever, construction, whatever it happened to be, and coming back and building their house back home so that they would have... First of all, it was a way of improving the standard of living for their families, but it was also a way of showing that, you know, that this was what they were capable of, you know, that they were not just a poor person and capable of nothing looked down upon in the town, but that they were actually capable people. And over a period of years, hundreds of men from this village sent their money back and their families over a period of time built these amazing houses that really were remarkable leaps in standard of living, far beyond what I considered when I was aware of at the time, uh, you know, with, with running water and, and plumbing and electricity and marble floors and, and wrought iron and everything, uh, beautiful houses. Um, uh, they, they built those in the town. So the town that I was seeing had been immigrating for about 40, 40 years by that time, and, and it was fully fully developed. What it did not have, what none of those towns have, is people. Yes. And All, that's, so, that's yes. so interesting. Let's stop there, Sam, and we'll come back. Okay, take a short break, and we'll be back and hear about that. You're listening to Living Writers today, Sam Quiones, and uh, we'll be right back. <laughs>
soy un desarraigado, vine por necesidad. Ya muchos años que me vine de mojado, mis costumbres no han cambiado, ni mi nacionalidad. Soy como tantos otros muchos mexicanos, que la vida nos ganamos trabajando bajo el sol Reconocidos por buenos trabajadores Que hasta los mismos patrones nos hablan en español Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm T. Hetzel and you're listening to Living Writers today. Um, I'm lucky to have Sam Quinones here in the studio and thanks to Hugh Stimson for engineering and also I should mention thanks to Alex Sergey, the, the lazy DJ for leading into our, <laughs> our program musically. Um, all right, so we're back and we've got uh, Sam's book, Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream. Um, and, and Sam was just telling us about what his first impressions, what right. he discovered when he went to Mexico. And what, what, what I found was, again, these houses, these villages, um, and I saw just one, but in the 10 years I was there, I realized that these villages were all across Mexico, where it was like one of the biggest urban renewal projects almost on the North American continent is the development of, of Mexican villages by immigrants who live in, you know, all across the, the United ha- States. But they're modern-day ghost towns by the sound of it. They've the never pr- had their boom town. They're just waiting. Exactly. And they're going to wait probably forever because what happens is immigrants go with the intention of returning. You know, when they leave at 19, they say, yeah, by the time I'm 35 or 40 or 50, I'm going to be back here and I'm going to have a big house. I'm going to have, you know, the whole bit. The longer they spend in the United States, the more actually they invest in their houses and to the point where it's, they're really, at times, can be actually palatial. At the very moment they really finish it and it's all done and it's ready to be lived in, that's the very moment when they realize they're never going to go back and live in it at all. Well, because now they have the roots in the States, whether and it's they the have families children. that are there, right? Yes. Okay. And they also are very Americanized. You know, they don't, it's, it's as if, you know, you go home to your hometown and, you know, you, you look around and you see the guy who's still talking about the four touchdowns he threw in high school. You know, you've moved on and your hometown has not. Right, and that's often the way uh, a lot of folks f- folks feel. Except for in the case of uh, of Mexico, oftentimes these towns really have almost nobody in them anymore. They have you know maybe a hundred people, two hundred people when before they maybe have like three or four thousand. You know, everyone else is in the United States, and no one's living moving into these houses. They are just standing empty. It's not as if the people who are there can then no. live in them or rent them or anything. It, it, you couldn't really, I mean, there's no market there's for no buying them, you know, yeah, and there's there's very few people who want to live in them. Uh, what they end up being, strangely enough, is tourist resorts for the immigrants who li- who grew up there. So the Im- immigrants will return for like two weeks. For the festival, just to did kick you back, say, right, maybe yeah. in January? And or? maybe they'll come back maybe for a week during the year again, you know, in another time of year. But it's really for them to just unwind. It's really like a, a big... Um, a, you know, it's like a tourist resort, essentially, is what they become. And 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 uh, they never, however... Uh, uh, How uh, surreal. Totally surreal. It's a very strange thing. And not only that, it happens over and over and over and over again. Particularly in the towns that have been immigrating, where people have been immigrating since, like, the, the 50s or the 60s, which is a lot in the north-central part of town. Now, you see other 
towns in the in 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 other stages of this process. For example, towns that have, where people have been really immigrating for like 15 years, you'll see lots of houses that are kind of half built. Right? You'll see lots of rebar sticking out. You still see big piles of brick or, or piles of sand where they're getting ready, or concrete or what have you, bags of concrete, whatever. People are getting ready to build. In Mexico, there's no mortgages that, uh, and, and credit lines that poor people can actually afford or people in the United States can afford. And also, a lot of time, the land is not, there's not a clear title to who owns the land. So there's no real loans that you can take out to build a whole house all at once. You've got to do it piecemeal. So you save up a thousand bucks, you go home, you put that into the house, you hire some workers, they put in another room or what have you, they put on a roof. The house waits another year until you come home, or maybe it could be two years maybe. You have the money, you do it, you add on some more, and little bit by little bit. That's why many of these villages, particularly in the early years, say people have been immigrating for less than 20 years. They have this unfinished look. Everything's under construction still. It's kind of permanently under construction, you know. And so, so this is so. So for, it sounds like this is something that you started to understand within the first couple of years of being there. Really, yeah. like it really was sinking in. And then you were there for a decade or over a decade and immersed in it. Um, so, as a writer, how do you? You've got all this information. Right. What are the? What are your vehicles that you can tell the story? Well, first, first, what I needed. I, 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 what. First, what I wanted to do is truly understand it deeply. And so not just go to one town and not just do one story, but do numerous stories and go back to the area. So you, you go to one area, you go away, you think about it, you write about it, and you come back and you do more stories. And so were you publishing articles, placing yes. articles in different Right. Places? I was a freelance writer. I wrote for numerous uh, publications around the United States, magazines as well, uh, some publications within Mexico. I mean, there was a whole bunch of ways of writing about the immigration topic from a business standpoint from a typical oh, okay. general interest newspaper from uh, uh, you know I wrote for Ms. Magazine I mean so, you know so you were lots of different the folks. opportunity to write essays about it too not just reportage well ma- mainly it was reportage I was trying to not, that in that by that and through that I would you know interview people get to know their daily lives their experience would kind of buttress what other people had told me. When I'd come back to the United States, I'd try to do stories about them living here in the United States. I mean, it was a long, long process of 10 years, literally, where where I came to see some basic truths and some concepts that I thought were interesting. And then when I was writing the book, you know, I'm a reporter, I'm not a sociologist. What I really want to do is tell stories those stories I want to reflect what I know to be the reality of, of, of the situation. And so the idea was finding characters that really um, could tell the story, could bring the story along from one point to the next, were kind of stand-ins for every immigrant, you know. And then, um, and then also, uh, but then also, you know, their, their personal stories were interesting, and they also illustrated some larger story about, uh, about uh, truth about Mexican uh, immigration that I wanted to, to get across. That... That's kind of the way I do. Uh, I did both of my books was to focus on real, what I consider to be great stories. Like I would be so honored to have found them. You know, they were so beautiful. These stories. You know, kind of like uh, a gold miner uh, mining for gold and finding this big nugget. Oh my God! You just cherish it. You know, that's kind of how I viewed these stories. And particularly when I, particularly when I found a person who really exemplified something and and had a beautiful story to tell, and at the same time exemplified something about Mexican immigration. So, so for, for this book, it would be Delfino then that we could 
yeah, that you the, could tell us a, a little bit. Right, right? The way, he's the one that frames this book. Exactly, and, and I did not start out trying to write about immigration with him. Uh, I really wanted to write about Mexico's immigrants, or migrants rather, because Mexico City relies on cheap labor the same way that the United States relies on cheap Mexican labor. The rural exactly. people coming into the city. From the city. And, and, and also exploited. <laughs> also, right, exactly. A very tough life that these folks have. Most of them are boys and girls, actually. They're in their teens. Because he They're, goes in at 12 years old. 12, and many of these guys are in there 14, 15. The girls are domestic uh, maids, and the boys are, were construction, most of them. And no one helps them out. No, I mean, it's a vast labor pool that is really uh, vulnerable. And But yet, their villages back in the States where they come from and their parents all depend on the money that they send sent homes he was one of those and I met him and in the course of several years because it was a story that actually lasted several four years or so that from the time I met him to the time I finally put the book together and and and, and sent it off to the publisher he had never emigrated. He had never thought of emigrating. Nobody in his village had emigrated to the United States. They had all gone to Mexico City to work construction. So I thought that was very interesting because I'd, I'd never seen a village in Mexico where no one had gone to the United States. It was really a rarity. It still is, I think, a rarity. Because he's, he's in Veracruz. He was it? in Veracruz, which is about 150 miles east. His village is about 150 miles east of, of, the, of, um, uh, of Mexico City. And all the men worked in, in construction. His dad, his uncles, everybody that he knew. He went there and f until finally he realized he got married, had a boy. Edith. Yes, right, exactly. Had a boy and realized that after 10 years of hitching his wagon, so to speak, to Mexico City, he'd achieved almost nothing, really. He had not moved ahead economically. He was still struggling to, he would struggle even more to feed his kid. And he realized that there was, he just had to go. Now, he was this great kind of daring, you know, uh, risk-taking kid who said, I don't care if nobody else is gone. I'm going to go because I know a coyote in a town nearby and he's going to get me, hook me up. And so he goes. And in a period of two years, he saves enough money to build this lavish house, very large house, with enormous windows, uh, second story, kitchen, to a bathroom with a toilet and a shower and the whole bit, which was not what he had before. He, in fact, he had, bears mentioning that he had this rundown shack that leaked. Then when the wind blew, uh, it, it was scarily cold. It was so cold. And that was where his mother, his his father, who had a problem with alcohol, and then yes. all his younger brother and sister. Everybody they lived. lived when they, when the... I would come to visit, I visited the, the, the village five times. They would not let me stay there because it was such a mean, humble place. They had other people in town put me up. And I was happy, actually, because it was cold in that little shack. When he goes to the United States, States, it takes him two years only to amass the money to send back to buy the concrete block and hire the workers. And in time, he actually becomes the largest employer in town. He and his brother become the largest employers in town while they're building their houses. And this is lost on nobody, of course, in town. They, they all look at this guy and go, oh my gosh, look. And they were the kids that were the most scorned, the yes, family the that poorest, was looked down upon, yeah, right? The father who, who woke up most days in the pig muck from being drunk. I mean, it was really a, a, a low, mean existence that they led. And they go in two years, and in 10 years, he's not able to do anything about this in Mexico City, working construction. In two, it takes him only two years of laying floor uh, flooring in, 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 in Los Angeles, in the area around Los Angeles, for for this family to be totally transformed. Mm -hmm. And from that, 
the entire town is transformed. This one kid kind of shows how it's done. I've had people ask me, do, do, do people put posters up around Mexico saying, hey, come to the United States and work? <laughs> I say, no, that's not necessary. All you need is one kid in the town to go and come back two years later with a big house. And no one needs any, everyone understands the point. It's, right. it's obvious to them that right. you stay 10 years in Mexico, you do not progress. Two years in L.A., boom. You're, you're, you're moving ahead, you know. And so that's what happened with this village. Now this village went from a, a town where, where, you know, nobody met, went to the United States to a town where there's probably 80 to 100 guys. Last I heard, I, it changes all the time, but 80 to 100 guys in the United States. Some are picking citrus in, in Florida. Others are working in New Orleans or in Louisiana in the hurricane reconstruction. Others are in flooring in Los Angeles. You feel so strongly about this, Sam. I mean, it's obvious that, that, that you do. And so um, as, as, a, as a writer, are you also, do you think this is going to be, are these stories ever going to let you go? Or is it going to be something, <laughs> are you looking for your, yeah. you know, it's a real that's a very good question. I mean, they do grip you the stories and and particularly when you commit not not uh, my my intention is never to write them as if like Delfino, I mean, he's a very uh, heroic kid, I think. But I never go into stories trying to write about people with, you know, through rose-colored glasses. I always want to write about them as real human beings who have failings and mistakes just like I do and you do and everybody else does. That's the way, you know, you write about these folks, not as some kind of noble, you know, uh, apostles, but as real h human beings. And so that means you have to, you can't blink when there are things about them that are, look bad, say. For example, you know, I wrote about one guy in the, in the book, a guy by the, who's known as the Tomato King, an immigrant who goes to the United States, very, very poor, comes back very wealthy, and runs for mayor of his town. Now, this guy, a wonderful guy, I liked him very much, but and he was enormous pot beer belly because he just guzzled beer all the time and had <laughs> it wasn't the tomatoes no 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 it was and and he had two or three wives and was always <laughs> ogling women in the streets and and i mean he was like this typical body kind of rebelizing <laughs> figure you know ah, a lot of big appetites for everything you know <laughs> I'm not going to blink and say, oh, you know, no, I don't, I'm not going to write about the fact that he boasted about having three women, you know, right. or, or, or that he didn't know who the most important poet from that region right. was and thought he, the guy who had died 50 years before was still alive and wanted to bring him onto his campaign. I mean, he, you know, it's, it's just writing about people as if they're real people. That's what, what excites me, not so much being an activist. I mean, they, these stories do grip me, but... But I'm not interested in being an activist about immigration. I'm interested in telling, telling stories through the eyes of, of certain characters, you know, that kind of th illustrate the, what what this human drama is all. Because that's what I viewed it as: as a big, massive human drama of people from one culture crossing time and space and language and culture to come to another, uh, uh, you know, illegally without any of the language. I mean, it's a remarkable epic, and, it is epic. and it's not really told. I don't think in that way it's it's told more in terms of whatever activist you happen to be talking to his or her point of view about about the issue but this works telling it this way works we're, we're thank Sam we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back you're listening to living writers um, today we're talking um, with Sam Keone's Antonio's gun and Delfino's dream we'll be back raise your right hand if you have 
I pledge allegiance to the flag and the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Congratulations, you're all now American citizens. Para quien dicen que soy malinchista Y que traiciono mi bandera y mi nación Para que rompa con mi canto las fronteras Les voy a abrir de par en par mi corazón Dejé las tumbas de mis padres, mis abuelos Llegué llorando a tierra de anglosajón Trabajaba, mis hijos iban creciendo Todos nacieron bajo de esta gran nación Y mis derechos los han ido pisoteando Van formulando leyes de constitución ¿Qué haré ya viejos si me quitan mi dinero? Yo solo quiero mi seguro de pensión Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Sam Quinones is on the program. His book, his most recent book, Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, True Tales of Mexican Migration. Um, and I love how on the, the front of this, there's um, Delfino is actually pictured yes. uh, with three of his, his friends mm-hmm. breakdancing. Um, yes. Compatriots, maybe. Right. Yes, and exactly. Then, right. And then it's great because here it says um, that Sam Quinones is a border legend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how to believe the hype, but you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever people want to say is fine with me. <laughs> Why are you wearing that T-shirt of yourself, Sam? Yeah, right, no, just no, kidding. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, so so you've got. We've got these stories that you're yes, telling, right? right? And then, and then your gig is as a journalist. Do yes. you see any difference in um, creative nonfiction, which which it seems like these this book becomes then, mm-hmm. and journalism? What? No, I just think that in books, you have longer, more more space, longer time to develop characters, and you also can write in a more luxurious way. In, 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 in journalism newspapers, a lot of what you say has to be attributed also. So every sentence has to end with, you know, or not every sentence, but many sentences have to end with, you know, he said, she said, the doc, according to court documents, according to <laughs> officials, la-di-da, that kind of stuff. That's great, and it's very important to write that way in a newspaper because you want to tell people how you know this stuff that you're saying that you know, and that's crucial. But when it comes to a book, you can kind of leave a lot of that behind, and you can just simply tell the tale. And what I try to do with my books is, is really make it as if someone is, you know, that you're sitting at a fire, can't, you know, a campfire or something like that, and someone's just done spinning a yarn, you know, of how such and such happened. I'm working right now on, for example, a, a children's book of a story that I wrote in my first book called The Popsicle Kings of Tocumbo, and that's the story of how one village in the, the state of Michoacan, Mexico, um, opted uh, not to emigrate. Instead, one of the members of the town uh, went to Mexico City and started a popsicle uh, shop and began to pull people from his village to Mexico City to work for him. He, he really, what he invented was a, a popsicle 
shop, but also a business model, so that as a you know with very little capital, you could open this shop, you could start make your popsicles in the shop itself. You didn't have big refrigerators or trucks or anything. You don't buy them from these places. And um, also, one of the great inventions that they came up with, with was using the fruit of Mexico and packing it into their popsicles. And so it was like, it was very cheap, so poor people could afford them, and uh, delicious. And you can still, across Mexico today, there's La Michoacana popsicle shops, or variants of those, are thousands, everywhere, almost every village has one, and some have numerous. I, I, five blocks, within a five-block radius of my house, there was five of these. Uh, so di- it's like Starbucks. Except for one big difference. They all look totally different. Oh. Because they're not franchises. <laughs> right. They're not right. franchises. It's just one guy owns it, or one woman, whatever, right. and they have their own personality. Some don't care at all. Some, they look really uh, scruffy. Others <laughs> others are beautiful. They sell different things. They have different popsicles. It's just got it's the name. It's business model. It's oh, the oh. business model with kind of the name, and it's even the name has changed. Some say the La Reina de Michoacán, Lindo Tocumbo. I mean, but the idea is always, is, is always the same, and it's an expression of each owner, unlike Starbucks, which right. is always the same. Uh, McDonald's, you know, Burger King, they're always the same. This is not that at all. It, it has definite a character, and some are, as I say, are really small, and you'd never eat there, and others are gorgeous. But what they ended up doing was it, they became kind of canvases, these shops, for the creativity of these poor farmers, people who started out as poor farmers and became great, wealthy um, popsicle makers. So they began That's to so m- invent popsicles out of all kinds of things. For example, the, there's a mango and chili and lime sauce, lime juice popsicle. There's cucumber popsicle with, with lime uh, juice. There's I've had bean popsicles dipped in, in chocolate and nuts. Uh, avocado popsicles, rose petal popsicles, tequila popsicles. Um, Something wh- for everyone. Yeah, and, and, and uh, shrimp popsicles. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's everything. And, and, wow. and it's, it uses all the cheap fruit and, and delicious fruit that Mexico has. The reason I like the story was, first of all, is this kind of magical thing. Who ever heard of a village where everyone makes popsicles? That's why I think it make a good children's book. That's the- but also, you know, in most... Mo- the situation that most people in Mexico, poor people face is there are two ways to real serious economic progress in your life. And one of them involves getting involved in dope, drug smuggling, and the other involves going to the United States. These guys, the Popsicle Kings, found a third way, which is simply kind of self-help. So they'd start these, start these shops, and then they'd, they'd have a, a young kid from the, the village come and work, and then they'd sell it to the kid, and he'd have, his own vi- he's had, he'd have his own business. They'd make the money, so both people ended up benefiting from it. And this this way it just exploded all across Mexico. I went uh, in campaign with Vicente Fox and Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas in 2000, the two, two of the presidential candidates. And we would go from, you know, the press bus would go from village to village to village. I never saw one village that didn't have at least one of these popsicle shops. It's kind of mm-hmm. part of the scenery of Mexico. Mm-hmm. now. And the village itself is the wealthiest town in Mexico, one of the wealthiest villages, best developed villages in, in Mexico. It's a small place, gorgeous houses, Paved streets, running water, I mean, a lot of development. At the same time, they've, they've kind of understood uh, uh, that how special I think they are, and they, uh, they've started a popsicle fair. If you go to the popsicle, go to the village in December, they have this big popsicle fair for about a week. They give away popsicles, all the kids, all the refrigerator and utensil makers come to town, try to get them to buy their refrigerators and what have you, their display cases, a it's number a of things like that. It's a convention. And at the end, party. <laughs> uh, a, a few years ago, they decided they still need to do one more thing. So they got together, and at the entrance to town, 
they built this enormous concrete popsicle that's like two stories tall. You know, it's an enormous thing. I, you know, the bizarre thing was that when I was doing the story, I was talking to these guys in Mexico City, the old timers, the guys who had been doing it since the 50s, you know, and they, oh, you got to go to Tacumbo. Oh, what a great town. I love my little town. None of them mentioned, oh, by the way, you'll recognize the town by the, by the two story popsicle in front of it. You know what I mean? It's just, and so I got there and I was just driving along in a cab and I go, oh my God. We're here. Out of a cow pasture, here's this two story concrete popsicle with this kind of wire ice cream cone stuck into it. But I mean, you're talking like probably 50 feet, 60 feet in the air, some, something. I don't have the measurements for it. And, and this is another, um, but you know, the, the thing is that, that this is another town where they, where they all built houses back in the village. They all have their homes back in the village. None of them are lived in. They're lavish houses. One guy even has a a, a, a soccer a, a, a rapid soccer field, a little soccer court right right by his house. And one guy has a tennis court. You know, I mean, it's like. Oh, I thought you were going to say this village is different because since they the the popsicle wealth is within the country, within Mexico, yes. that then it would mean that the people were living in the actual town, the village yeah. where they came. Well, what from. happened? What's happened is that they all have moved to the areas where they have most of their popsicle shops. So yeah, because you can't. Th- they'll all descend back on the town for the popsicle fair and at different times during the year as well there's because it's more easier to go back and forth obviously because they're all in mexico but but yeah no i mean the, the, and, and all the cousins of numerous cousins will get together and one guy will be from the north one guy will be from the south one guy will be from the east and they'll all have these different accents and you can hear all these people kind of thrown together and oh hey how you doing and they all come with their big cars and all this stuff but it's it's a kind of a local mexican success story the problem is of course it's just one success story and there needs to be Mm. more like that but I really believe the Michoacana popsicles are one of the great Mexican products of the last 50 years along with Corona beer and some other things because of what they have allowed what they've given to poor and working class people a kind of a road out into the middle class that is quick it doesn't take two generations or three generations one guy achieves it and then his kids continue uh continue to you know continue on so 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 this is what you're going you're you're making a children's book from that and so how how is that different writing a children's book sam children's book is like kind of writing haiku you know you have to distill 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 no more than you know that that story that i wrote in my first book about the popsicle kings i can't remember but i imagine it's somewhere along along the lines of ten thousand words say maybe it's less um the book, the children's book, it cannot be longer than 900 words, you know. Plus, you leave out, children need innocence. They don't need cynicism. They don't need skepticism or sarcasm in, in, in the language or in the, in the Unless story. Unless you're Daniel Handler. With I don't a know series, who that is. series of unfortunate events, then oh. you need... <laughs> you're throwing. I don't okay. know who that oh, is, but, okay. but <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word for it. Yep, okay. uh, <laughs> um, the the um, uh, in in this case, you know, I just write about you know a young boy who goes to Mexico City and is stunned, and, mm-hmm. and but he wants to do something that no one's ever thought of before. That's his great dream to do no one something no one's ever thought of, and no one has ever thought of making popsicles packed with fruit, and then no one's ever thought of expanding these businesses nationwide and then no one's ever thought of building a 
two-story popsicle <laughs> monument, you know. The, the, plus, it's... You, Every time you say that, I start laughing. Well, I'm you can sorry. see... I, I, you, I'm, you just, and, I'm wondering, you would like, yeah, the shape, you, what is it? No, it's an enormous red popsicle, <laughs> okay. and, and, and uh, two stories tall. I think about as large as a, as tall as a two-story house. You can see a picture of it if you go to my website. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, SamQuinones.com. How did I miss go that? Go to the photos Jeez. all the way down, kind of midway that's, down through the photos. I think I was just looking at the, the photos that pertain from to this fir- book, and that's book, why yeah. I'll definitely go back to we should put one up by Paul Bunyan and Babe, like when you're right. driving out, you know, they can have their giant popsicle. No, that's exactly okay. what uh, what happens. So. And so, but for the children's book, do you already yeah. have a publisher for that? No, no I'm, I'm still writing it, can... but I have an agent who I think is oh, going to try to shop it around. And the idea is really just distilling and getting very declarative, simple sentences. The way really writing for children is like getting back to the very basics of writing good English. It's simple, small words, declarative sentences, not complicated clauses and everything. And um, clear, The clear best sentence. word for the job, too. Exactly. Right? You cannot, and, and only... The word for the best word for the job. No, not three best words for the job. You know what I mean? One word. And and cutting out a lot of what's not. At first, for example, I had a lot of how tough life was in this village. Then I read it and I said, you know what? Kids don't need to know. They can figure this out when they're 10 or 12 or 14. When they're five, what they want to know, what they really need to know is what a sweet magical thing this story is what a sweet magical creation these folks came up with an entire village based on the com- the, the 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 production of popsicles i mean let you the pro- popsicle be your guide exactly basically. right and also the the initiative and the creativity and the um gumption that these people showed in developing this totally new industry nobody had ever done this before no one you know it's a it's a unique industry because it's not been financed through banks either you know it's it's a totally unique industry with in, or, or, or section of retail in, 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 in Mexico. Um, and, and it's all, what, what it achieved was bringing people out of poverty and showing them also kind of what's possible. So the, the, popsicle, uh, the popsicle shop is kind of like, is very much like a painter in his canvas. You as the popsicle shop owner can do whatever you wish. You can sell, some of them sell nachos and pizza and others sell uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just some, you know, have bubble, bubble gum. It, it doesn't matter. You can kind of create what you wish. And the same goes for creation of popsicles. There was, after they lost the kind of the blinders of the, of the limitations of their village, they went, they saw all the possibilities that, uh, uh, of, you know, through, through popsicles. So yes, they could create a cucumber popsicle. Uh, no problem. <laughs> we, we're going to take a short break, Sam, and we'll be back. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, and we'll be back in a moment. <laughs> En los Estados Unidos Diez años pasaron ya En que crucé de mojado Y papeles no he arreglado Sigo siendo mi legal Tengo mi esposa y mis hijos Que me los traje muy chicos Y se han olvidado ya Y no puedo regresar ¿De qué me sirve el dinero? Si estoy como prisionero Dentro de esta gran 
hasta lloro Que aunque la jaula sea de oro No deja de ser prisión Escúchame hijo ¿Te gustaría que regresáramos a vivir a México? ¿Qué estás hablando, papá? No quiero volver a México No way, papá Mis hijos no hablan conmigo Hi, welcome back. You're listening to Livel, Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Sam Quinones with his book, Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream uh, True Tales of Mexican Migration. Um, so, so, Sam, when I was reading through the book, I also yeah. noticed that there's, uh, and what you've said today, it's mm-hmm. interesting, is also what's being drawn out. You're all about the gumption and the yes. chutzpah and the risk taking. Right. And it seems like in the book you're saying this is not this is what we're not as a as United States citizens. We see the Mexican immigration or migration yes. from only our stand. And, and now you're presenting these stories to us. And yeah. we're and we're seeing um, not only the empty houses, but also that these people like the, some of the biggest risk takers. Yes. Besides the popsicle folks. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, they're leaving. So yes. not the intellectuals necessarily no. and not, you know, not the people who are very tired and, and not doing anything, right. but these people with this yes. energy. And that's that's why I think uh, on balance we gain from Mexican immigration. Not that there are, there are no costs. There are great costs to Mexican immigration. However, on balance we gain because it is people most like more than more than more often than not who come here who are have this drive, this this desire, this they're they, yeah they're not satisfied with the way things are and they're voting with their feet. And that's also why Mexico loses. Mexico is losing it. They get $26 billion in remittances every year from immigrants who send the money home and so on. That's nothing compared to what they're losing, in my view. They are really losing the very lifeblood uh, of the country, and, and certainly in large chunks of the country, that's who's leaving, you know. And, uh, and that's why uh, I, I believe that Mexico is kind of bleeding to death at at the border it's uh, the problem is that getting people to see how serious and urgent a matter it is in the mexican elites to actually do something about it they have not they don't see it that way i believe that you know um immigrants who come here they spend 15 years 20 years here they they do very well there's no reason why they can't do well back in mexico except for the the system that is in existence down there is uh you know limiting to poor people they treat mexico treats poor people poorly that's why it's poor you know, we're a rich country. What rich person ever came to the United States? Nobody. People come here poor and are transformed into middle class and wealthy folks. In 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 Mexico, it is this kind of there's this feeling of of uh, well, we're losing another poor. Who cares? Who cares if these folks leave? Because we got so many poor people. It is mm. they. The problem is they don't see these folks as the potential agents of transformation. That I really think they they could be and they, and poor people always have been in well, because fact they would if have given the motiv- a chat the motivation shots, right yeah. they have the real motivation to be these agents of they transformation they have like hunger nipping at their heels they have you know this humiliation of being poor and they don't want it anymore all, all kinds of psychological economic you know emotional reasons for 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 really you know, busting their butts and when, when, when they come here. And it's a very American attitude to work, overcome any obstacle to achieve what you want. If that obstacle also includes crossing the desert, you know, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a huge hurdle. And the people who do it don't, take it don't take it lightly. But you can also tell, by the way, that it must be pretty bad. 
if you have to, if you're risking death crossing a desert to leave what you have back in where you're coming from must be pretty bad we, and so this is this is the problem mexico faces it has to change it could transform it could be a, one of the real countries world's great powers i think if it provided this channel, these channels for for poor people to to um, use their energies to 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 achieve what they want, and uh, the problem is that they simply it, Mexico simply has not been able to find a way to do that ever, as far as I can tell. So it's interesting too, because with your background in economics, then then you're able to to bring that vision to this writing. I, I would say that my vision, my, my 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 background in economics is pretty limited. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, uh, yes, no. I mean, I, I find the, the topic fascinating, and 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 the economics of it, of course, is 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 there as well. I mean, people are clearly suffering. There's no. There, it's when you live in Mexico for a long time, and you understand, you and you live in areas where people uh, have left. You you study uh, how their lives and what they were like before they left. There's no. You can understand very easily why. You know, there's nothing. But how many journalists or writers? Um like yourself are are there Sam like how many I'm other sure people now. are working on understanding it uh, not very many people when I was there did a lot of reporting on immigration because there are many other things to write about in Mexico. I mean, it's not just one, one, a one-topic country, that's for sure. It's very complex and a lot of stuff going on. I focused on immigration because it really fascinated me. And also, I felt that in the areas where I was going to most likely end up, which California and the West Coast and so on, um, that this was going to be a big issue. I was not foreseeing, uh, only until later did I see that, that this was happening in Atlanta, too, and in North Carolina, and big, big numbers in the way it has in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. When I first got into Chicago. it, it was really just, right, exactly, uh, Milwaukee, places like mm-hmm. that, you know. Um, I, I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't, I only saw that later, you know, and then it made me all the more convinced that I had chosen the right topic to really devote a lot of time to studying because now again it's everywhere it's all across the united states uh in uh many 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 small towns have never had this kind of influx or many years past or or diversity coming to to their doorstep in a certain way a a new culture and totally and they're at loss to how to deal with it and the the proper approach to it and 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 the, the folks who are there are little you know, the, the Mexican immigrants are a little kind of dazed by it as well, I'm quite sure, you know, uh, being so in now, a place like Indiana, say, you know, <laughs> but, very different. Very different. Very different. <laughs> um, so now, as I'm listening to you, it seems like your your material then is also growing. If it's it, now it's a national in scope, it's not affecting the area of country, the country that you thought. So how are you working with the material? Like, what's your process now? You've got two books yes. uh, dealing with this. Uh-huh. How, how do you move forward with the material? What what other yeah, I'm tr- the what children's I'm tr- book for yeah one. what I'm trying to do is develop various stories that at, at, at heart I still remain a you know what I hope is still a storyteller you know that's the main thing and uh, why is that uh, I guess it's just part of my personality but also I think that if you tell st- people never the technology changes people change in numerous ways nobody ever gets tired of a good story I mean it just doesn't happen you know human told beings well. all yes exactly right told well and that's a key thing and so um, that's part of what I'm trying to do I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm 
because I'm in Los Angeles, a lot of my focus is on on, on Los Angeles area, and I'm thinking of maybe uh, trying to write a book about a um, a little uh, small the smallest town in Los Angeles County, uh, a town called Hawaiian Gardens, which is entirely Mexican and um, mainly Mexican American. It's been on audio for I don't know how many, forty or fifty years, and a, a very very serious gang problem there. One of the most ferocious gangs is little townhouse in the LA area. How how ironic with that name too though. Yes, right, I know. Hawaiian Gardens. It's a sweet little town, looks like a a blink and you're through it. And yet this town this this gang has been a real real problem. And it's about this one guy who uh, starts a rugby team. Uh, he's the, like the gang counselor, and he played rugby when he was a kid, and he didn't know what else to do. You know, he's been gang counselor for many years, and a number of his guys, he keeps on trying violently to keep them away from the gang, and a number of his guys are in prison doing life and stuff, you know. He starts, he, he finally decides, let's start a rugby team. So he starts a rugby team, and all Which of would play so- prep schools, I would yes, think, in right. that area of the country. Except that, <laughs> except that they, they're all made up, first of all, of blacks, Latinos, Samoans, Tongans and and a, and a couple of, of white kids, and all from like the ghetto in mm. a sense, and um, they all uh, they play these teams from like Santa Monica and San Clemente, San Diego, all these very kind of white teams that have been around also for years too. They've been a long time. This is only their third year. Last year was only their third year, and they win the whole the whole thing. There's a girls team. The girls win the national the state championship. The boys win their region. You know, there's a 14, under 14 and under 16 team. And it's it's kind of this, uh, what I hope to be, uh, you know, take this little, little town and write the stories of this little town. So many men have gone to prison from this town. And in fact, one of the guys I hope to help narrate the story will be a guy who's been in and out. He's a junkie, you know, been in and out of prison all his life. And, and and kind of you know it's a little bit like this this, this coach is a little bit like the Moody movie Rudy you know that about Notre Dame that, that kid. Um, I was thinking you had a screenplay. Here yeah, oh, too, oh definitely <laughs> oh definitely you don't live in Hollywood L A without having a screenplay in the back of your mind. It's almost like you enter the region they give you this thing. You got to think about what, what screenplays <laughs> might you have. You know what I mean? But uh, that's that's kind of what what uh, what I had in mind was this this kid. You know he grew he grows up in the ghetto too. He plays. Uh, Football. He doesn't even know how to play football, but he's dying to play football. He goes. He has this one coach, this crusty old white guy who screams and yells, and but he's this wonderful influence on him. He grows up and he beca- He uses this guy's philosophy to influence these kids. And through rugby, the fascinating thing. I, I have covered lots of anti-gang prevention programs and so on. They none of them work. Okay, I've never oh. seen them really work very well. That, let's put it that way. I don't say none, but not a lot of them work. Rugby is about the only one. Only kind of intentionally formed to start stop a gang that actually is doing it. All these kids at 14, 15, 16 are fading away from the HG. HG is the name of the gang, and just losing interest. You know why? Because they can bash heads out there on the rugby field. You know, and and, And get some glory. And get some glory, right? And it is. You should see them. And it is an amazing thing to watch. I mean, it's brutal sport. Oh yeah, it is. I don't know much about it. People walk away with the cauliflower ears and the right. Yeah, and and the and the and the gap tooth and all that, you know that kind of stuff but it's it's a it's a it's a fascinating example and through the uh, of how this thing can work how how you know it gets into topics like love you know and this kid this guy is the father figure to all these kids a lot of these kids don't have a father at home or if they do a lot of them do the father is kind of like mentally absent from the kid's life in a lot of ways you know and this is the guy who's there all the time and they 
may you know at practice it's run ragged and it's no no uh, there's no uh, um, discipline sometimes, but when it comes down to it, they'll do anything for this guy. And one of the things they've done is simply drop for lack of interest. It's interesting. It's not like they. They decide, well, I really like to be in a gang, but I'm not going to. They just stop being interested in it. You know, it's just like, why? I'm I'm doing the I'm doing the I'm doing the I'm playing rugby, man. I'm playing Fullerton, you know, I'm playing Santa Monica and go smash those guys. And at first, you know, it was all about they would go out there and smash you know, smash into these guys and be like, Oh, yeah, HG dude, you have all like, kind of like acting like gang members. Right. You know, like and throwing the signs and all this kind of stuff. Right. And you know Well, if that's all you know. Yeah, and now after this that was that first year in or the coach, Ernie Vargas is his name, wonderful guy, had to take him aside and say, you know what, we don't flash gang signs in rugby. <laughs> rugby is for gentlemen, you know? And, and, and it's true. I mean, it, in, in, in England, right, rugby is the gentleman's sport. Right, Soccer is the, the hooligan's yes, sport, right? right, right. And, and uh, it's similar to football. Uh, this, the, the comparison is similar to football, where one guy was telling me, the big, thick guys probably could play linebacker. He was saying in football, they teach you to hate the team before the game. They hate, teach you to hate the team during the game, and they teach you to hate the team at your opponents after the game. In rugby, you're smashing them. You're 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 trying as hard as you can to bring these big guys down. But, but you got to admire end, that. But in the end. You go out and you have a beer with them. You have, go ahead. Uh, yeah. It's it's all about the camaraderie afterwards, and so it's teaching mm. people a way of using aggression that is more um, productive, I guess, or or, or less damning, or less uh, uh, harmful, rather, yes, to yeah. their to their lives. You know, and that's what's that's what I like about the story. Frankly. And this is your current project. And I so hope this to make it so. Yes, so I'm you're... still working on kind of putting together a proposal, and you know, who knows? Again, the 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 the, the screenplay, of course, is there. Going, please write a three screenplay. You know, this kind of thing. It's amazing if you go into co- coffee shops in Hollywood or in, in in parts of L.A. Everyone's got an Apple computer, and everyone's got uh, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the the, the program that they used to write uh, uh, <laughs> screenplays, but they all oh, have really? the screenplay template up. You know, you can see it's one after another after another. They're all writing screenplays. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming to talk to my us pleasure. about about your book, Sam, and <laughs> and I'll be eager to see it. I, I think I think it is going to be <laughs> that's your screenplay. <laughs> uh, we got to copyright it right here. There we go, there we go. <laughs> for Sam Quinones. Um and his book. Uh, you can go pick one up. Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream: True Tales of Mexican Migration. Um, thanks again. Again, Sam, for being on Living Writers. My today. pleasure. Thank you very much. And, um, I appreciate the time. Oh, and thanks for listening, Ann Arbor. Thanks again to Hugh. Um, and uh, thanks for listening, everyone streaming. Uh, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Este, están viendo, vieron las noticias anoche de cómo ya están cambiando las leyes en Estados Unidos para los, los legales, para nosotros. Los... Lo oí en el radio. Sí, también vi lo de las redadas, está difícil ya. Ah, están sacando gente. Sí, está este, poniendo difícil pues, la situación. Sí, pues. Todo lo están haciendo y más difícil. Parece que sacaron más contra nosotros la, la raza, ¿no? Los mexicanos, los latinos, los salvadores. Pues eso está un poco. Los yo creo que vamos los a tener que... Los son los que están ahorita sufriendo no bastante. ¿Sí? Pues todos, más pues, todos. Sí, todos los latinoamericanos. Sí, pero pues... Pues vamos a seguir adelante, ¿no? adelante sí. Yo creo que... Bueno, vamos a echar una cancioncita, ¿no? ¿Le echamos una canción? Sale, sale. Pues le echamos una canción, ¿cómo no? Para todos ahí. Para ahí viene para toda la gente. Ahí va, dice... Un, dos, tres. Un, dos, tres.
Sports Report. I am Andrew Side, your host for today, and I felt that song was uh, more than appropriate. Excellent on a uh, day in which uh, Detroit fans rejoice. Matt Millen finally out of here. Yes, exactly. As uh, we've been hearing, Fire Millen chants, Fire Millen signs, everything with Fire Millen for the last two, three years, and finally the Ford family. Got rid of the guy. We don't know. They still haven't figured out if he was fired or if he just resigned. According to SI.com, he was fired. Okay, so SI.com is the latest saying he was fired. Uh, it was first reported by Fox Sports News mm-hmm. saying that uh, he is gone. Chris Mortensen came out and uh, instead of giving the credit to Fox Sports News said, Hey, I talked to his wife and she confirmed it. Hey, well, way to go, Mortensen. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, pretty much all you need to know is that um, when it came down to it, Millen is gone, and the Detroit Lions, looking like one of the three worst teams in the league, up there with the Chiefs and the Rams. Yep. They uh they they're finally gonna go in a new direction after for the first time in five years, after a 34 and 81 record. Yep. So well we have to wait until the end of the season before 